I'm Matt Hunkler, CEO and co-founder of Powder Keg. And on the show today, CEO and founder of Megawatt, Ilya Rector. I'm wearing a suit. I'm in the bus with the mayor sitting next to me, just sweating, <laughs> watching Reed, you know, straddle the driver's seat of the bus and open up all these electrical compartments and wireless. But to his credit, 26 minutes and I think like 10 seconds is what it took. He got it done, all credit to him. We won the bid. Ilya Rector has built one of the first sustainable Bitcoin mining companies in the world, Megawatt, which is headquartered in central Indiana. Prior to starting Megawatt, Ilya was the co-founder and CEO of DoubleMap, which was eventually acquired by Ford Motor Company in 2019. What started out as a college project scaled to one of the 100 fastest growing companies in America, doing all of this without taking a single dollar of outside funding. In our conversation with Ilya, we talk about his family history and immigration to America from the Soviet Union, scrappy startup stories that are going to inspire you for sure, and how to bootstrap a software business all the way to a successful exit. That's all coming up on this episode of Get In. I was born in technically a country that doesn't exist anymore. At the time of the Soviet Union, now it's Russia. So in my dad was the ultimate, in my opinion, kind of hustler entrepreneur where he wanted to get us out. He did not like the system for a million different reasons, some of which we're seeing today. So he saw the writing on the wall back then, but he started writing letters. He learned English. He was a scientist, is a scientist, started writing letters to all of these different universities and academic organizations around the world, one of which went out to the University of Washington in Seattle. And this guy, David Gordon, read it, thought, thought there was something there, and ended up convincing at the time the Soviet Union in early 1991, before it had collapsed, to let my dad leave. My mom and I were back in the middle of Russia. And at the time, I, I was young, so I can't pretend that I remember this. But in theory, we weren't going to see each other again. So my dad left. And luckily, a few months later, the Soviet Union collapsed. He didn't have any money, but his boss, this guy, David Gordon, sent some money to my mom and I, and we caught the first plane out and came to America. So I credit a lot of entrepreneurship to my mom and my dad because my mom didn't know English. She was very young. My dad learned English, but very much a second language. And through these you know, letters that he wrote, got us out of there. Tell me a little bit about the psychology of that being you know, first generation immigrant in the US. What kind of impact did that have on your career and yeah. what direction you took things? Well, if you think about it, I'm now in my second startup, but going back to the first one, startups, that's just not a thing that existed in the Soviet Union. It somewhat does maybe now, which is questionable in Russia. There, you know, capitalism didn't exist. So had I stayed, had my dad not taken those risks, had my mom not taken those risks, my life would be vastly different. So I always felt the sense of responsibility to, to do something of value with opportunities that they gave me. Well, you certainly have. It's got to feel good to deliver on that expectation. Sounds like you put on yourself. Mm -hmm. It's wild to think about. It like, really like is. Literally, if your father hadn't been able to, if you hadn't sent a thousand letters, got someone to reply, got over here, collapse of the Soviet Union, your mom and, and yourself move here. At this very moment, who knows where you'd be? That's That's pretty insane to think about. Yeah, not somewhere I'd want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Alternate I, reality. Yeah. I think about that. Parallel universe. Frequently, right? So I was adopted from Russia when I was nine months old, and I'm constantly kind of drawn back to like, wow, you know, when I'm having a bad day, it's like, could be worse. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did your family stay close? Was it David Gordon? 
Yeah. Did your family stay close with him or stay in contact with him as you guys like, you know, got settled in the States? Yeah, we're, we're still in touch with him today. He was the reason he ended up getting a job at the University of Michigan. And this was a few months after we'd moved to Seattle. He asked my dad, hey, I know you just moved across the world, but do you want to move to Michigan? My dad's response was, well, it's in America. I don't really differentiate Michigan versus <laughs> Washington State. So sure. And at least the way the story has been told to me, my, my dad is, is not James Bond. Let's put it that way. He's a scientist. The CIA or one of the organizations, rightfully so, was, I think, watching him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he just left because we moved to take this job at, in Ann Arbor. And a few months later, I think his lab got raided wow. <laughs> because they lost him. Oh, my god! And they started interviewing everybody. My dad's name is Mark. You know, hey, you know, does Mark actually do work here? Is he just in the back, you know, take, right. jotting down some notes? Luckily, you know, he wanted to get out of Russia. <laughs> so he was doing, you know, actual academic work and science-related research. So that worked out. But wow. funny backstory there. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, and you grew up in a college town, Ann Arbor, Michigan. What do you think, what impact do you think that exposure had on you just in your own cultural exposure? Yeah. So my dad was doing his postdoc at U of M. My mom went to grad school at U of M. So we were living in low-income family housing. So we didn't have any money, which depending on where you live, that can create some class inequality. Where I lived, my elementary school, which had 300 kids, I think had something like 70 countries represented. So you get off the bus after school, nobody has paid nannies or people to watch them. So I still remember some of these, you know, people's names who I was friends with. And we had Zhongjiao from China and his family would watch us, you know, on Mondays, on Tuesdays. It was Kevin Obungu from Nigeria. We had Dominic from Australia. We had Ataro from Japan. My family would watch them one day and it just rotated. So the sense of, hey, it doesn't matter where you're from. We're all here to build a better life doesn't matter what religion you are, what skin color you have, what background you have, what orientation of anything. We're all just working to build a better life. The, the most beautiful definition and explanation of community right there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, and that was my experience growing up in West Lafayette, across the street from Purdue, mm-hmm. was just all my all my best friend in preschool is from Morocco, my best friends in high school are from Sudan and Poland and Korea. And I think a lot of times people who aren't from the Midwest, maybe haven't spent any time in the Midwest, don't realize just how multicultural mm-hmm. Oh, yep. many parts of the Midwest are. Absolutely. I think it's one of our underutilized assets mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, or at least lesser known yep. assets. Absolutely agree. Well, tell me how you ended up in Indiana. So I, my dad basically got a job at Eli Lilly is the, the short version of the story. Slightly longer, I had this cultural shock where I went to a small school where I had 60 kids in my grade, made this big leap to go to a public, you know, bigger high school, had 2,000 kids, and then midway through freshman year, Moved down to Carmel, which is like the biggest school in the country, I think. Yeah. And had to make all new friends there. (laughs) The city of champions. There you go. I I know you say it as if it just happened, make make Mm -hmm. new friends there. But that's actually really hard to do, especially Mm -hmm. in high school, when you're going to a school where maybe people have known each other for Mm -hmm. their entire lives. You learn any lessons making new friends for the first time? I mean, one, I'll give credit to Midwestern hospitality in Indiana. People were actually welcoming. So from that standpoint, it wasn't as bad. For me... I, I was always athletic. I would have these, I'd play hockey and soccer and I'll run track. And all of a sudden you go to this big high school, there's there's a lot more competition. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you really do have to think about, hey, you know, it doesn't matter that I was the best player on my soccer team when I was you know, 13 or 14. It's more, hey, long-term, what do you want to do? What are your actual skill sets? Are there actual curiosities beyond, you know, something like athletics that you want to pursue? And was it the Kelly School of Business that drew you to Indiana University? So I, I've got a funny backstory there, too. I, I was an okay Spanish student in high school. 
but I placed well in the national Spanish exam. Nice. So I, I got to IU thinking I was going to take a Spanish scholarship. And I, I asked the academic advisor saying, hey, what level Spanish do I need to take? And they said, well, it's a foreign language scholarship. You can take anything you want. <laughs> so I, I speak Russian. So I decided. <laughs> 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 I'll do Russian. Way to, yeah. way to work the system. That's yeah, awesome. I love that. I love that. So it seems like, right, academia, like higher ed was part of your life growing up. I mean, with your dad and, and mom. But was, was entrepreneurship part of your life in, in your home life? I feel very fortunate. My parents were and are extremely supportive at the same time. And I joke with them still to this day. I think as far as, you know, the scorecard, the way they were raised, which, you know, academics were the central focus, I'm a huge disappointment. The entrepreneurship doesn't exist in the minds of that, you know, generation of people from that country. Let's put it that way. So from that standpoint, I, I don't have a higher degree. Like I have a, an undergrad degree. I don't have a master's. I don't have a PhD. I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. So that scorecard is, is off the table. Failure. Yeah. Well, by our scorecard here, you're doing great. Appreciate it. Appreciate <laughs> it. Well, I, I, and I, I think your first entrepreneurial venture, maybe outside of some childhood lemonade stands and things mm -hmm. like that, kind of came about at Indiana, Indiana University. Is that right? Yeah. So my goal at IU was to get good grades, get a job and have some fun. Maybe not always in the right order, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, Going into my senior year, a friend of mine in my fraternity, he was running for student body vice president, wanted some help on the campaign. I, I ended up agreeing to help. We, we get elected, and there's five platform issues that they ran on. I, I wasn't one of the main people. I wasn't president or vice president. But I helped enough on the campaign where once they, they got selected, I was one of the chiefs. There was five chiefs, so think of it as a cabinet. Yeah. So we had a very sophisticated way of picking who got what issue, platform issue. And I lost five sequential games of rock, paper, scissors and got stuck with transportation <laughs> and eventually buses because nobody wanted to, to do that. So that was the origin story there. Rock, and paper, little did scissors. you know at that Man. moment how cool buses would be. It wasn't a passion of mine. That's what's interesting. It's, it's <laughs> something that I learned. I'm either going to do something 100% or I'm not going to do it. So once I committed, I became obsessed with transportation. I learned everything I could. So it actually, in a roundabout way... So What's what happened? So, what, so how did that evolve? So in student government, you want to just get things done to help student life at whatever university, in my case, IU. So first we brought Zipcar at the time was new to Bloomington. That was this big win. Then we brought something called Zimride, which there's, there's an interesting side story as to a huge mistake personally and professionally I made there about passing on an opportunity. But once those two were done, what later became my first startup, Double Map, was what I started. And the origin there is going into the summer before my senior year, we had these issues that we as part of the transportation initiative had run on, one of which was adding something called the U route. If you're familiar with Bloomington, they wanted to get more attendance at football games. So they wanted to add a bus route just on Saturday mornings to bring people to the stadium, which IU football was not very good at the time. Maybe it's gotten better, but at the time, certainly not very good. Attendance was low. Maybe short start of, there. Yeah, short of teleporting <laughs> to the game, <laughs> yeah, getting a better football team. Right. <laughs> IU administrators did Maybe you should have been the coach. There you go. <laughs> Could, couldn't have done much worse. Although we did go to a bowl game one time, so that was nice. Um, but it, they didn't like the idea of adding buses, which was going to add wear and tear to buses, add fuel costs, add driver salaries. So I essentially got laughed out of the room by these administrators the summer going into my senior year. And one of my just fears at the time, and still to this day, it's not even that I want to look smart. I want to avoid looking stupid. So I started pitching them ideas that I had just thought up of on the spot. Although I pretended that I had put in months of research and work and all this stuff. And one of them was we had the bus that I took every single day to class. 
it had a paper schedule. And we all know that weather happens, traffic happens, life happens, buses rarely run exactly on time. So the iPhone had just come out. I said, hey, you know, why don't we put an iPhone in every single bus and then using air quotes, you know, friend them and put them on a map, which was very naive of me to say, but I said, hey, why don't we do that? Would that be something, a project that you are interested in? And they said, sure, how much would that cost? In my head, a data plan was something like 30 bucks. We had 30 buses. So I said a thousand bucks a month. And I think they were just trying to get rid of me as this you know, kid that was pestering them about this random project they weren't that interested in. So they said, sure, we'll give you a $12,000 a year budget. And I walked away thinking, oh my God, I have, I have a $12,000 a year budget. This is, this is more than zero, which to me is binary. Yep. So all of a sudden it became very real. Let's go build this thing. And throughout the course of the year, we, we built it. We launched, it wasn't a company at the time, it was just a project, an app. I viewed it almost as my legacy. We launched it. But then going back to my roots, you know, with my parents, there was an expectation that I got a job. So I took a job instead of pursuing it as a startup, mm -hmm. but later came back to it. What brought you back to it? So I graduated, I became a consultant, I moved to DC, and I had this very cool opportunity where I picked a boutique consulting firm because I knew I'd intern there. I knew they had some overseas work and I was obsessed and still am obsessed with traveling. So they wanted somebody to go to Ethiopia, Nigeria, and Ghana. So for about six months, I wasn't actually in DC, I was, I was abroad. Fascinating, fascinating experience. But while this is happening, I'm getting messages from the IU transportation manager saying, hey, we need X, Y, and Z bugs fixed in this bus tracking app that you've released. And again, it's my legacy. So I wasn't looking for money. I said, sure, you know, I'm dealing with some some work things and some rolling blackouts potentially, but I genuinely want to get around to it. I will do this. You don't need to pay me. And he cut me off. His name's Perry Mall. I still actually have a relationship with him to this day. He's an amazing guy. I owe a lot of what we achieved to him believing in us. I, you know, I said, it's going to take me some time. He said, you don't understand. We have 30,000 kids using this every single day. I'm getting more phone calls than it's it's worth almost at this point if the thing doesn't work. We need this fixed now. You found, you found product market fit. Unintentionally, yes. <laughs> so he almost started negotiating. He said, well, what's it going to take for you to do this now? Is it going to cost money? How much money? All this. And then I almost pivoted because I, I had been entrepreneurial my whole life. I was the kid with the lemonade stand. I was the kid selling bootleg DVDs at summer camp. So I was always obsessed <laughs> with you know, some kind of, whether you call it product market fit, but some kind of building. right? Yeah. I wanted to build things of value. And in this case, there was dollars on the table. So I think we negotiated our first deal was an annual contract for $18,000 a year, which is not enough to live off of, let's put it that way. <laughs> but to me, it's very binary. I still believe this is the day that it's just as difficult for a startup to go from making $0 to making a dollar or two as it is to make millions of dollars. Yeah, but can you imagine how many startups would love to have someone reach out to them and say, hey, I want to be a customer and I'm going to start at $18,000. That's massive. It's awesome. But I think that only happened because as students, a lot of times we feel powerless. We're young. We don't have experience. We maybe feel like we don't know what we're doing. In my case, I almost felt the exact opposite. I felt plenty stupid not knowing what I was doing, but I was paying tuition and I was representing yeah. students as part of student government who paid a whole hell of a lot of tuition. And all of a sudden, these IU administrators and these transportation people at IU, luckily in our case, they were supportive and genuinely interested. But even if they hadn't been, they have an obligation to listen to us. At which point, if you build something of value and it's live today, and that was you know 2009, 2010 wow. when we built it, they they have to follow through on it. So all of a sudden, it wasn't that you know we were pushing them. We found product market fit, like you said. So for all the students that are right now, as we record this, using the bus mapping on campus at IU, 
Thank Ilya. Only if it works. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it not, doesn't work, it's their yeah, fault. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, Nate already teased this. Talk to, talk to Ford. Ford ultimately acquired this company. Yep. A lot of things happened in between. Yes. What were some of those kind of like pivotal moments? Matt, I might back you up. Yeah. Right? So you talk about your parents giving you this kind of like report card grades of go get your master's, go get your PhD. How did the conversation go when you said, I'm actually going to go work on a startup that makes $18,000 a year and quit my lucrative job abroad mm -hmm. in consulting? I think not only at that moment, but genuinely, if you ask my parents now, for the first five years of the company, I think <laughs> they thought that I'd lied to them and I'd actually been fired because in their head, you know, who quits a job, any job, much less a, a good job that I enjoyed that was letting me travel to go do, and I, again, air quotes, but this is what they called it, this quote, bus thing <laughs> for, for what ended up being 10 years, but for the first five years, who knew what it was going to become? Yeah. Wow. So I guess if you, if you, were they supportive or was it kind of like a fight there? So that's where I credit a lot to them, right? They did not get it up until the day we sold the Ford. <laughs> and solely because I think they knew what Ford was, they, they got it, but they were always supportive. And that, that I'm forever grateful, right? Yeah. They, that's, I think, the ultimate role of a parent is you might not get what your kids are doing, but it's your job to be supportive, and they were. Yeah. I love that. That's amazing. Okay. I have, I have this, a map, too, right? So you sign your first customer with IU. You're now working on Double Map. Mm -hmm. What do you do next? So life came at me very quickly. So going back, I was, I was living in D.C. And as a consultant, you're taking primetime flights wherever you want, booking them last minute. I was living in a hotel room, so my room was cleaned every day. I, I wasn't spending any money on food, all this stuff. All of a sudden, one of the first clients we ended up pitching that just became, came up for bid was Georgetown University. So I'm mm. back in D.C., but I'm living in Indiana. And all of a sudden, I'm not flying to Dulles on a direct flight in the middle of the day. I, I remember this very well because it stark over the course of two, three weeks of, of a gap. I'm flying from Indy to Baltimore on Southwest, taking the 36 bus from BWI to the Green Line on the, the Metro in DC, taking that to a buddy of mine who lived in Arlington and sleeping on his air mattress to go pitch Georgetown, yes. which did that for a while to build a relationship to show them we were committed to them. That was part of our pitch because we're a young startup. So they're buying, I think, us as much as they're yeah. buying the product and belief in us. But eventually we won the deal, and that was, that was a big pivotal moment for us because that's a university, like a brand that people know. How old were you at the time? A year out of college, so you know, 21, 22. That's amazing. Yeah. Then fast forward, right? I, mm -hmm. I, I did some research, and you were pitching the mayor of Columbia, Missouri? Sure, yeah. Uh, tell me about that story. So even after we'd gotten Georgetown and you know, we got University of Michigan, which is nice, it brought me back to Ann Arbor and some of these other schools, we started pivoting more into municipalities and cities. Eventually, we ended up doing corporate fleets and airports and hospitals, but Columbia, Missouri was both, right? It's a college town, but also a larger city in Missouri. So we're pitching them, and even though we have a product and we're making you know, seven figures as a company, we're still not you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. We still have a lot to prove. So our pitch was that we're this nimble product. We can install it really fast. We're not like this old tech where you have to tear apart a bus and do all this crazy stuff. We were using not iPhones, as I had originally pitched, but you know, something similar like a, a tablet infrastructure, more ruggedized. So we pitch, and when you do these requests for proposals, RFPs, you, you submit this 100-page document, which that's a story in <laughs> of itself about creating that content and staying up nights. There's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into that. 
But if you make it through the initial process where dozens of companies are, can submit, they usually whittle it down to three or four finalists and you go and pitch in person. So in our case, we, we drive out there and you have no idea who is going to be in the room. Sometimes it's just the transportation manager, maybe in a few more people. In this case, it was a big project for them. So the mayor of the city is there and there's probably like 30, 40 people were presenting all this too. And again, our pitch was under 30 minutes, we'll install this in a bus. Here's our installer. Mind you, our installer is my college roommate and one of my best friends. <laughs> He's not, not like a professional <laughs> installer. We hadn't timed him as to how long this was going to take. I just, I was relatively confident. Was he wearing penny loafers as well? We actually played it up, right? <laughs> so it's amazing. It's fun. No, it's a, it's a good point, right? Because we all had to play our role. Yeah. When we usually did installs. I'm getting my hands dirty. All of us are doing everything. Right. But in this case, I'm wearing a suit and he's, he's the installer. So they, they said, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Let's pull up a bus and, and test this. So they, they immediately pull up a bus. They pull out an actual stopwatch. And I want to help. His name's Reed. He's, he's still in town here. I'm still very good friends with him. I want to help him. We usually would tag team these installs and we had a few more people with us. But I can't because the role that I'm playing is the presenter, the yep. CEO of the company. I'm wearing a suit. So I'm, I'm in the bus with the mayor sitting next to me just sweating <laughs> watching watching Reed you know straddle the driver's seat of the bus and open up all these electrical compartments and wireless but to his credit 26 minutes and I think like 10 seconds is what it took so by the skin of our teeth he got it done all all credit to him we won the bid and moved that is there. awesome yes. that's amazing yeah. well and you mentioned Reed is one of those early characters on your team but tell me a little bit about your co-founder Peter Servas so Peter and I met, so going back to student government election, he, I didn't know him at the time. Yeah. I knew Jack McCarthy, his vice president, my fraternity brother. Peter was ultimately the president that we essentially helped get elect. He elected. was good at rock, paper, scissors. Well, he didn't have to. He was the president, right? <laughs> gotcha, it, was, gotcha. it was me and five other people. <laughs> so I didn't know Peter. He didn't know who I was. But I think over time, he saw that I, I cared. And in this case, I think whether it's finding co-founders or you know, getting ahead in, in any career, just caring and giving a damn, I think goes a long way over time. It shows. So in his case, he was like, wow, this is actually turning into something. Him and I started talking. He, he was going into investment banking and ultimately did, but we bonded over the fact that we both liked startups. We liked tech. We wanted to, frankly, we didn't want a real job. Yeah. We wanted to create our own jobs and ultimately became business partners that way. That's amazing. How do you think you guys complimented each other? Because some, sometimes it feels almost like alchemy, how these co-founding teams get put together. In, and while a lot of times co-founder relationships are complementary, a lot of times they're not gone into consciously mm -hmm. being like, hey, you do all the things that I'm bad at and I do all the things that you're bad at. Mm -hmm. How did that kind of play in the relationship between you and Peter? I think, so we had a third co-founder as well, and there's probably a cleaner example with him. His name's Eric. Sure. Peter and I, just being young, and naturally you have different skill sets, right? Even if you take what our professions were, he was an investment banker, I was a consultant. There's different skill sets, right? So yeah. Yeah. naturally a lot of the finances fell on him. A lot of the operational efficiencies fell on me. So we had natural deviations that way. Eric, I think, is, is a funnier story where we weren't technical. So Peter, with his pull as being student body president, I still don't know how he did this. He convinced the School of Informatics to give us a capstone team to help oh, that's build awesome. this project. Love that. And again, it wasn't a startup at the time. Yeah. It was a project. So that, yeah. there was merit there. But they treated it like a class. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted you know, the finished product. I was ready to you know, work day and night to get this done. I was going to graduate. There was a ticking clock. They're going about this you know, week at a time, <laughs> a semester break. They're taking vacations, all this stuff. And I'm still friends with some of the people on that team. So they were very talented, but it was just different for them. Mm -hmm. So 
after their capstone finished, we said, hey, we need some technical help. So through a friend of ours that we met, he said, hey, I've got this smart guy. He's younger. His name's Eric. And I remember I was somewhat cocky at the time, right? We had a dot map. We thought it was a bus. We thought we'd invented fire. So in walks this guy. I'm a senior. I think he was a freshman or sophomore at the time. And, you know, I said, hey, here's, here's what we have built so far. If you start by doing some of these low-level bug fixes, maybe you can work your way up to do this. <laughs> and then eventually this, this, and this. That's amazing. And he's super humble to this day. He listened to me rant for 15 minutes. <laughs> and then our mutual friend had told him maybe a week or two in advance what we'd been working on for six months. He just casually turns his computer around. Oh, this is And awesome. he had built exactly what we had spent six months building in, in under a week. Wow. So I just backpedaled and I was like, listen, <laughs> what can I do to just get you to join our team? We'll do whatever you say. And it, it goes to show he ended up interning at Google. Fascinating, brilliant guy, but he became our CTO and co-founder. That's amazing. How did you convince him to quit the Google route and go in on a startup? Honestly, I'm not sure. To this day. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been in his DNA too. So I remember, I'll answer it a little bit differently. He, he was pitched by a lot of, as he called it, you know, businessy people at IU about doing this startup or that startup. And he said what differentiated you know, Peter and I to other people who were presenting this to him was that we actually followed through and had an MVP, a minimum viable product, and had showed follow through and were taking it very seriously, ended up getting paying clients, all of that. Most people, they're, they're just talking and have pretty slides and pontificating. Exactly, yeah. right? So I don't know exactly if that convinced him to leave Google. Maybe by that point, we'd gotten a little bit more traction. I mean, he saw you know, that it was a legitimate startup that was going to be high growth, but getting him to buy in early on, that's that he took. So sure. talking about getting that traction, again, did my research here. You guys topped off at, what, 93 on the Inc. 5000 list? So we made it four, maybe five years in a row, but that was the highest. 93? Yeah. So what... What attributed to that growth? Like, how do you go from, you know, you are got a couple customers here, you're on an air mattress in the mm -hmm. D.C. area and out sweating while someone's installing yeah. on a bus to 93 on the Inc. 5000 list? So I don't know if there's one single thing, but using DoubleMap, and I'll dive a little bit into the details of what we did, what our products did, right? So the story of the static schedule, you want to know where your bus is in real time. Think Uber for buses. That's how it started. But if you think about transit, right? So we're sitting here in Indianapolis. If you need to ride the bus, meaning you don't have a car, you don't have a bike, and you need to get across town, you have exactly one choice, and that's the bus system, Indigo. So there's almost this natural monopoly for transit organizations, and they have a budget to where ultimately they want to do the best for their riders, but there's only a certain amount of dollars to go around, to where a tr an app to track the bus by itself oftentimes doesn't move the needle for them, right? Is that going to increase ridership? Is that going to mm -hmm. decrease costs? Is that going to increase operational efficiency? Maybe, but there's not a scientific way to prove it. Mm. So we launched this and you know, we thought we were, again, geniuses, right? We had a dot moving on a map, multiple dots by this point in time, but it didn't sell. So we started talking to real world customers. And what we realized was there's other budgets and other projects they're pursuing. But our technology, we're putting brains inside of the bus. And if you walk into a bus even today, Oftentimes, you're walking back into the 1970s as far as you know, tech, yep. systems aren't talking to each other, all of that. So in our case, we realized there was a bid coming up where they had a, a sizable budget to, do, uh, to help visually impaired riders. So imagine now, if you're visually impaired, you're blind, you're relying on a bus driver to announce when the next bus stop is. Bus drivers are human. <laughs> right? they, they might do it a little bit later. They might do it a little bit earlier. They might forget they're driving a bus. At the end of the day, there's all sorts of variables. So again, 
Siri was coming out around this time. So we had voice synthesis technology. We already had this tablet infrastructure in the bus. We realized we could actually leverage the exact same hardware we had, plug into the speaker system on the bus, and actually help visually impaired riders. And oh, by the way, there's a budget for that. And oh, by the way, we have this cherry on top now, this app to track the bus that was our differentiator away from other companies that we were competing against. So it became this ecosystem where we did a lot of things inside of the bus to integrate these siloed systems, help route optimization, help count passengers so that you knew where and when people got on and off so that you could optimize your routes. And that ultimately led to the company taking off and us winning bigger contracts. Make sure to mark your calendars for August 29th through 31st for Rally, the world's largest cross-sector innovation conference featuring pitch competitions, demo arena, interactive experiences, and a whole lot more. Join us on August 29th through the 31st in Indianapolis and visit rallyinnovation.com to secure your tickets today. Tell me about how you ended up getting acquired by Ford. Was that something that was always kind of a North Star for you or did that kind of happen through some serendipity as well? I think hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Sure. At, at the time, you're just trying to grow and stay alive. Yeah. And, you know, pay your bills. But <laughs> starting out, I very much, I wanted to be a true entrepreneur. And, you know, you, you have this checklist where you want to sell a company and grow it to where it's valuable to somebody else. So that, that was a goal. Now, it took way longer <laughs> and it was way harder than I thought to where if that's the pure goal that somebody has, I would advise them to go maybe do something else. I and mean, we never expected to sell the Ford. But ultimately, we got big enough to where one of our competitors was actually acquired by them. Out of curiosity, we, we called the CEO. We were at CES one year, and we called the CEO and said, hey, how's life at? And ultimately, he introduced us, and we ran a process to where we had, I think, four or five other offers, and we ended up picking Ford. That's amazing. Did you have like VC or investors that were like kind of maybe pushing you towards an exit? So we were bootstrapped. We raised zero dollars throughout the, the history of the company. That's amazing. And there's nuance there, right? It's not that we were against raising money. It's that going back to these requests for proposal, like we talked to about Columbia, Missouri. A lot of these RFPs, they have grant funding to where they have, let's say, four or $500,000. You win a bid, it's, it's a five-year bid, but a good chunk of it is actually allocated up front to where you still have to deliver on the product and you still have to, from an accounting standpoint, recognize the revenue over 60 months. Cash is king. Yeah. Yep. And when we were actually raising our initial round, which we had a million dollar term sheet originally that we had raised, throughout that process, it took six months. We won our first RFP and said, hey, we don't have to give any equity here. Yeah, your customer is your, is your VC in essence. Yeah, why don't we just do this model? Yep. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, I, I, I would, would love to understand what you were thinking after that exit. I know a lot of times founders can kind of feel a little bit lost mm -hmm. after they've put so many years and so much of their life into something. But I also know you have a lot of different passions and you've gotten involved with a number of different startups here in Indiana. I'm sure you traveled a little bit as well. Tell me a little bit about that time period after you sold DoubleMap. Yeah, I, I'm a pretty candid guy, so I'll give the, the good with the bad, right? Yeah, that'd Because be everybody has this image, right? You sell, I had this image of other <laughs> entrepreneurs. You sell and you're like on a beach somewhere, right? Yep. right? In our case, <laughs> I actually think our work ramped up after we sold, there was more meetings, there was a lot of red tape and a lot of things we had to learn now being part of a, a huge, huge international company that we as a little startup weren't necessarily paying attention to at the time. So there's a lot more work. I got married at the time. I, I had my daughter at the time. This was August of 2019. So little did I know COVID was right around the corner. So a lot of things happened there. But I, I signed a non-compete for didn't particularly want me to you know, start the next version of Double Map to compete with one they bought, or, Fair. or at least that's what I assume. And I had some time; I had to stick around at that company. But when, once I left, 
it's more, hey, I spent the last decade of my life in transit and I, I can't start another company in transit. So what is it that I do? And in my head, again, there's this playbook. I don't know if it's just in my head or if this is reality, but if, you, if you're fortunate enough to sell a company, then you start doing some angel investing. So that's what I did just to stay plugged into the tech community. And I had some connections of people who I knew were raising money, who I'd worked with in the past that I was passionate about helping and participating in. So I thought that I would try that as uh, like a real job. Going back to I only do things if I can go all the way in. Yep. So I, I saw dozens, if not hundreds, if not probably a thousand plus pitches and slide decks. I picked five deals that I did equity investments on of various sizes. But what I realized through that process, there's some people, and I admire them, they wake up in the morning hungry to chase deals and meet these companies. I, I admire that, but that's not me. Mm -hmm. I realized through that process that I am who I am. I, I like building stuff. I like when it's a pirate ship mentality, when it's a small team. We're all very much pulling in the same direction. We're going to make mistakes, but you know, we control our own destiny. So I did that for probably about a year, and then I said, okay, I need to think of what I'm going to do next. And I spent about a year meeting with potential co-founders, just ideating, coming up with ideas and all sorts of, and it was a very difficult time because it's not like an idea just pops into your head and you just run with it. Yep. So ultimately, right. maybe not quite fully depressed, but I, I was not sure what I was gonna do the rest of my life. And that was actually a very difficult time. How did you get interested in Bitcoin? So right around 2016, I got interested in Bitcoin and I wanted to have some skin in the game. So just like I'm sure a lot of people who got interested in that stuff, I bought some on Coinbase and fell down the proverbial rabbit hole, researched it, and felt smart in 2016, maybe 2017, felt stupid 2018, 2019, smart again, 2020, you know, the whole roller coaster. Sure. Throughout that journey, I learned about Bitcoin mining, which that's probably a longer conversation if we ever want to get into what that is and how it works. But ultimately, what I was interested in going back to doing angel investing is a passive form of income, mm -hmm. right? In theory, you plug in a very noisy computer and it just prints you Bitcoin every single day, right? Imagine a rental property, but you don't have to deal with tenants. You don't have to deal with broken plumbing, all of that. So I wanted to do that as part of a passive investment. Yeah. It's noisy and power hungry, and I had a newborn at home, so that wasn't going to fly in my basement. <laughs> yeah. So I set out and I found some hosting companies across the country. I found four different ones. I think one was in Colorado, one was in Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Kentucky. The assumption was that two weren't going to be very good. The hope was that one would be okay and one would be excellent and I would consolidate my operation there. What I learned is that they're all genuinely run by good people. I still am friends with a lot of the founders of those companies, but they either didn't own their own land, didn't own their own buildings, and in some cases didn't know how to run a business or wouldn't pay their bills on time. And then mm -hmm. I had this you know, six-figure personal investment of these weird computers that were homeless collecting dust. <laughs> and I, I didn't feel good about it, much less explaining that to my wife. So I hadn't set out to start a Bitcoin mining company. But I said, hey, I, I've run a business before. There's clearly a need here and a demand. Why don't I actually try my hand at this? And I hired a consulting company to do a nationwide search. The goal was to find affordable, available, and sustainable energy. We looked at Wyoming, we looked at Texas. I, I happened to be passionate about Indiana. So I started looking at all of our local utilities in Indiana, and I found one that's actually 85% carbon emission free. I worked with some local economic development corporations to find some land and Outside of just being passionate about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, which we launched and now a seven-figure business of its own in Megawatt, I'm obsessed with bringing more of that to Indiana. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I, I love that, one, you have the passion to go deep on something when you're interested in it mm -hmm. and like really figure out where's the need, where's the, the kind of uh, break in the chain 
of, of operations and then say, okay, there's got to be a, a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. And I also love that you kind of looked in your own backyard and said, what does Indiana have that I could use knowing that you've got all of these relationships in Indiana to, mm -hmm. to lean on? And then, then you made it happen. Well, and that's, uh, I think a lot of people, they, they talk about Silicon Valley and they talk about New York and, you know, we're here, you know, in a flyover state, some would call. I, I've always looked at wherever it is that I am. In this case, I'm in Indiana and I'm here for the long run. So I'm very passionate about Indiana. I look at what do we have here that's a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of really high-end academic institutions, a lot of technical institutions. If we can keep that brain drain low and keep that talent here, I think that's a natural competitive advantage because they have friends and family and relationships here. The other part, Bitcoin mining, it, and sometimes gets a bad rap because it uses a lot of energy. Right. Well, that's also why it's not going to happen in New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles, because there's a lot of people there yeah. that need that energy. Yep. Whereas here, we had this automotive infrastructure that was built and all these factories, some of which are you know, now gone, but the electrical infrastructure still exists. Yep. So where the city we're in and the location specifically we're in used to be this 700,000 square foot warehouse that an employee torched in the 80s and got upset cool. or something torture there's these newspaper articles about it so it looks like a bomb went off it's just a carcass wow but there's this electrical infrastructure there from the grid that's 85 percent carbon emission free so we're talking a lot of wind a lot of solar a lot of nuclear in that area and all of a sudden we're revitalizing this area where the downtown the building's falling since we've been there there's buildings that have just collapsed because there's nobody in them and all of a sudden they're a high-tech hub on the bleeding edge of bitcoin mining yeah and we're creating you know local jobs and working with local contractors all of that that's amazing. Are there are there states that are treating Bitcoin mining as an industry and leaning into that with you know tax credits or energy credits or and and talk about that? Are there states that are treating that that way? And how does Indiana think about that? So Indiana thus far is not doing anything. And funny enough, if that we were as a state to attract do a tax credit, probably be bad for my business. That'd mean more competition for energy. I'm so in favor of that. Because I'm okay rationalizing an AI startup being in San Francisco. We have talent here, and there's nothing stopping Indiana from having AI startups. But there's just a disproportionate amount of capital out there to where it's, it's going to be difficult for us to compete on a macro scale. I, I, over my dead body, will Kentucky beat us? <laughs> nothing against Kentucky. <laughs> but that's, that's where I'd kind of draw the line, right? So Texas has some incentives. Wyoming has some incentives. But Kentucky is a more recent example where they have this 7% tax credit where electricity that's used in Bitcoin mining is tax exempt. So that's attracting publicly traded companies. There's over 30 publicly traded companies that do just Bitcoin mining Wow! to set up shop What are the market states. cap ranges? Do you know off the top of your head by any chance? Hundreds of millions of billions. Yeah. There's a, there's a wide range. Yeah. And they, they've, you know, market has not been doing great, so they're not doing great. So there's questionable portions there. But that's kind of my point is that even if the companies that come go bankrupt, let's say that I'm wrong and all these companies are wrong. What happens to the state? Well, they, they built a lot of electrical infrastructure and they, they put transformers and a lot of this wiring down that, at their expense that's now left over, at which point, go build a data center. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. In the meantime, they're paying taxes and it's taxed as ordinary income. Use that tax income to build roads, hospitals, and schools. You don't have to be bought in on Bitcoin to do this stuff. Right. But not to mention it can help balance the grid and all this, in my opinion, fascinating stuff that Bitcoin mining can do beyond what people view it as, which is just Bitcoin. Yeah. Well, I, I think this might be a good opportunity to ask you your opinion just overall on Bitcoin. Obviously, you're all in. Mm -hmm. 
But I know there's a lot of skeptics out there. Obviously, there are a lot of people who are naysayers and have kind of been down on it the entire time. And of course, the market has fluctuated too. So mm. no matter what you want the narrative to be, you can find the data to support it sure. either way. But what's kind of your take on it after going super deep on Bitcoin? So I'm I'm just Bitcoin, so I don't nothing against all the other coins, but I'm I'm just into Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining specifically. Nothing against all the other coins. I'm just a, a Bitcoin guy. That's that's what I believe in, and I'm not all in. Like I love it. That's to say, we're running a business, right? We have a payroll, we have bills. Those bills are in U.S. dollars. So ultimately, it has to be a balance of both. I can't just lead with my heart. Ultimately, we have a bottom line. With that said, I think that there's opinions, and you said there's data to support any viewpoint. I totally agree. But I like practical, physical examples. And that's what I love about Bitcoin mining relative to any sort of coin. Because you can touch it. You can see the actual end. So an example, in 2020, 2021, you might remember there was a snowstorm that blew through Texas. And if you lived in, yeah. let's say, Austin, for example. It just happened again, like last week. Yeah. There, so last week, it didn't impact the grid as much because of Bitcoin mining. And I'll oh, give that example. So back in 2020, 2021, if you think about how electrical grid, grids work, and I'm not trying to get deep because... Heck, I'm six to eight months ahead of you guys, if nothing else. Right? <laughs> I'm learning this myself. But you have a certain amount of power plants that are built for the community that they support. And they assume some level of growth rate in that city. You take Austin in 2020, COVID happens. All of a sudden, all these people move there. That's going to stress any power plants mm -hmm. that they have. Oh, by the way, it then snows. It doesn't snow that often there. That stresses the grid even further, which Texas is an unregulated grid. We can talk about that some other time. But largely, that meant that if you live there, Either your power costs went up 10x, which that's substantial, or you didn't have power and you had a ceiling fan that had icicles going on it, and that's very bad for a million different reasons, right? right? So how do you fix that? Well, you build more power plants, right? That's expensive, that's slow. Or you can tell businesses to power down. Now, you don't want to tell a hospital to power down, right? They use a lot of power, but that's probably useful, <laughs> right? You can tell a data center to power down, and they could, but then you can't watch your Netflix show and you know, you're not happy or whatever you can imagine, right? Gmail is down. That's not good. Or Bitcoin mining, again, the knock is that it uses a lot of power, but it doesn't have, in some people's opinion, not mine, utility beyond just Bitcoin itself that it generates. Well, great. Shut us down, and it releases all of this energy back into the grid, at which point, if you lived in Austin, and we're actually doing this here in Indiana, all of a sudden, your power costs don't go up. You're completely unaware. Oh, and by the way, the grid is perfectly stable to where your power costs don't go on. You still have power. You have heat. You have AC in the summer, all these things. And it's actually fascinating how it works. So the hmm. grid, for example, in Indiana, it's split in half. The portion we're in stretches all the way from Indiana to New Jersey. Wow. So yep. you can have sizable impact by doing this. Wow. That's crazy. That's interesting. I, I didn't, didn't, know, I didn't that. know that. Yeah, yeah me neither. Mm -hmm. What are you most excited about with what you're doing at Megalot? So that's new for us. We just started doing some of this grid balancing stuff. Mm. I think we can do way more. Yeah, that is something I'm obsessed with because that's that's beyond just my belief in Bitcoin as you know gold replacement or you know substitute. That's something we can help people's lives today in real practical dollar and cents terms. What, what do you think about the people that say, well, the governments across the globe are just letting the private sector build up this infrastructure, and then they're going to just step in and say, okay, no more Bitcoin. You now have a U.S. coin mm -hmm. and fork it over and you can't use it anymore or mm -hmm. take it over to control people and shut off people's cash mm -hmm. to force them to take to, to behaviors that, uh, that they want. Uh, I'll is, that, is, is that way too deep? Is that podcast 
two we should do? No, I, I'm, I'm happy to. I'd love, I'm I'd, I'd love to at least get the, the quick version. We can always go deeper on the, the future episode. <laughs> yep. Yes and yes is the answer. What I mean by that is mutually exclusive governments, and I don't like this, but governments will do what governments do. They are actively already creating their own digital currencies, but they're digital currencies for the dollar or for whatever country and their local currency. That's like saying the dollar competes with gold. They're, they're fundamentally different to some degree, right? Bitcoin, and specifically, again, Bitcoin mining, where I think it's interesting, is that anybody can Bitcoin mine. You don't have to be in Indiana. You can be in you know, yeah. any other country in the world, and the network will exist as long as there's miners plugged in to where a government can't just shut it off. That's like saying you can shut off the internet. Right. Right. It's That's the definition of being actually distributed and not a centralized currency, which is what centralized right. government currencies will, will be. Yeah. Interesting. That's pretty exciting. I I would love to see the facility sometime. I don't know if you allow outside tours. We started doing tours, so you're welcome to come. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. How do people find out about it? I ping me on Twitter, find me on LinkedIn. My okay. Twitter's Ilya and then the letter X Indy. Awesome. And happy to do it. All right. We'll we'll link that all up in the show notes so so people can find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we wrap here, we do have a lightning round mm-hmm. if you're open to it. Totally. Nate. Perfect. I I do have um two additional questions that we're adding to the lightning round, but we'll be quick on them. First, just like a personal personal question for you. Has it been difficult, right? You said you had 10 years in transportation. Has it been a difficult transition going from the transportation guy to the Bitcoin guy, Bitcoin and energy guy? It was difficult before I became the Bitcoin and energy guy because then what am I, right? And there's an existential crisis. I don't mean to make it dramatic, but if I don't have a purpose, I'm that type of guy where I actually like to work. I, I like to go build things. So my crisis was before I found what I'm doing now. Now I have a purpose and I'm, I'm forging ahead there. Perfect. I love that. I read about this in the IBJ. When mm-hmm. you were deciding between consulting, there was another option on the table. Mm-hmm. What, was your, what was the option you turned down and what could that panned out to be? Yeah, I, I'm not complaining because I feel incredibly lucky to have the career that I've had and meet the people I've met along the way, which is to say I made a huge mistake and my career would have been way cooler had I <laughs> taken this one opportunity. So I mentioned when I was in student government, we brought Zipcar in. Well, one day we get an email. I'm student government transportation chief or whatever my title was. And it's a guy named John Zimmer with Zimride who's partnered with Zipcar. I just saw a lot of Zs. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of Zs. Yeah. I took the meeting. Sure. In comes this guy who's like 26 at the time. He's like, hey, I've got this ride share idea to where if you want to go from the airport to IU or back, you know, we can hop in each other's cars. It's like a digital ride board in the union. Imagine that with some Facebook integration. It's like we're going to charge like eight to 10 grand for it. We've got all these other schools. I saw it from a student government standpoint. It was a cool idea. Don't get me wrong. But I saw it as, again, another check win that we're helping the community. Yeah. So he was lobbying IU admin. IU admin didn't have the budget. I lobbied student government to pay for it for, I think, two years. And we got it done in probably two, three weeks, which later having sold to universities and student governments, that is very fast. Yeah. fast. Yeah. I just didn't know any better. Yeah. Right. I, I wanted to get something done. Something so, to that. Yeah. So that impressed him. And, you know, he said, hey, you know, why don't you come join our, our team? And I said, that's that's a kind offer. I'm really focused on this consulting thing. I just gotten my offer there. I'm OK, but let's keep talking. Cute startup. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I graduate. I'm like two weeks into my job. And he said, hey, we're actually pivoting the company. So I wanted to circle back to you. So this whole ride sharing thing. We're no longer going to do it just from the airport to, you know, universities. We're going to try to compete with taxis. And we just raised $400,000, I believe the number was, 
to go do this. Come join us and be, I think it was employee like seven or eight in San Francisco. And I said, hey, I'm actually genuinely interested because I really liked him. I met this other guy, Curtis, at the company. He was great. Still have a relationship with him to this day. But I said, $400,000 is going to last you like a minute and a half in San Francisco. And I don't know about this whole idea about getting into strangers' cars. So I passed. And I still have this email correspondence. Of course. Awesome. Uh, fast forward a few months. I think we're pitching Stanford or something like that. So I'm back in San Francisco. And I take a lift to meet John at their office. <laughs> and I realized what their office was and like what it had become. It wasn't in the Midwest yet. We didn't have it here. But I realized the scale that they were already on then. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I've made a terrible, terrible mistake. So this company is Lyft. And it became Lyft. Yeah. So I, I don't know financially what that means, but <laughs> when they went public, I can imagine people there did well. We won't do the math on that. I, I, yeah, I've, I've avoided doing the math <laughs> just so I can keep my sanity. There you go. All right. Great. So now to the, the true lightning round. Outside of the amazing entrepreneurs, what is Indiana known for? I mean, I think hospitality, sports, marketing tech would be kind of the things I would say we're known for today in racing. I think that we have opportunities to expand on that a lot. I use Bitcoin mining as an example of this infrastructure that already exists that I feel like is untapped. That's just what I'm focused on. I'm positive that there's dozens of other things that if people really look at it through that lens, that there's opportunities for us to not only compete, but to have natural competitive advantages over the coasts. I love it. What is a hidden gem in Indiana? Hidden gem in Indiana? Megawatt. I like megawatt. It's a good question. I, I mean... At what point will you enter the gigawatt? <laughs> that, that was our joke when we were coming up with a company name. And <laughs> people asked that, and I said, listen, we'll rebrand. That'll become a good, <laughs> good problem if that happens. I love... I was in Bloomington yesterday, and I, I love... There it's called Dats. Here it's called Yats. I think they had a falling out. I love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they renamed it. I love that too. Yeah. I like Nick's English Hut. So there went there go. and then Buffalo Those are those are great mm -hmm. gems. I'm just thinking to the future now. 1.21 gigawatts. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. 88 miles an hour. I love it. All right. <laughs> who is someone that we need to keep on our radar? Someone who's doing some big So I talked about angel investing and the first company I invest in is called Malomo. So they're run by Anthony Smith and Yao Ning. I know nothing about e-commerce. I just believe blindly in those guys' ambition and intellect. So I think those guys are awesome and crushing it. Amazing stuff. This, this was a great episode. I agree. Is that it? That's all I have. You have yeah. completed the lightning round. Awesome. Awesome. In thanks a very energy efficient way. Perfect. <laughs> Not surprising. Ilya, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being on the show, man. This was great. Thanks, thanks Ilya. Yeah, it's amazing. This has been Get In, a Powder Kick production in partnership with Elevate Ventures. And we want to hear from you. If you have suggestions for our guest or segment, reach out to Matt or Nate on LinkedIn or on email. To discover top tier tech companies outside of Silicon Valley in hubs like Indiana, check out our newsletter at powderkeg.com newsletter. And to apply for membership to the Powder Keg executive community, check out powderkeg.com premium. We'll catch you next time and next week as we continue to help the world get in. Since you just listened to this podcast, you might be thinking about starting one for your company. Lucky for you, our partners over at Casted have you covered. Casted is the first and only podcast and video marketing platform made specifically for B2B brands. I love this about them. The platform makes it possible to publish, syndicate, amplify, and measure the value of your podcast and video content. In fact, we use it for our podcast here at Powder Keg. And if you're a startup, 
you should listen up because Casted for Startups is definitely for you. They are offering exclusive deep discounts of up to 82% off retail price for qualifying startups. Connect with Casted at casted.us slash powderkeg.